Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Idea Market Podcast once again. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Sam Barton, who is product uh, lead at Idea Market, and we are joined by Matt Pukowski, author of Matthew Pukowski. Is it mattpukowski.com? Uh, MatthewPukowski.com. Matthew. I think I have both. They probably redirect the same location. Okay. MatthewPukowski.com, uh, mimetics extraordinaire, uh, writer on capitalism, decentralization, NFTs, crypto, value, uh, a topic called distributed valorism, um, and a mass of extremely interesting and prevalent and important ideas. So we're going to be covering... A lot of stuff in this, but hopefully it should just be a relaxed chat, which I, I see as sort of almost revolving around the the tenets of capitalism in a way. But we do have a a special opening idea market question for you, Matt, which is if you were to design a course or a boot camp, as they're now called, uh, the purpose of which is basically everyone who enters that course comes out the other side as a clone of yourself. Uh, what would that course look like? You mean uh, sort of a clone of myself on, on that one dimension that the course is addressing? Uh, is that, the is that the purpose mean? of the course is basically just to create clones of you. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I, okay. This, I guess, this is an interesting uh, what's your background question. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I've, I've actually thought about this um, from a number of angles, and one of the most important angles right now um, is actually that of parenting or, or educating one's own progeny. Um, I'm going to be a father here in you know a number of months, and um, I've been thinking a lot about what it looks like to sort of establish the foundational principles, the first principles that allow for someone to uh, actually effectively perceive the world. Um, you know, most people don't take long enough to really think about the fact that our perceptions and, and what we learn, um, you know, the, the ideas that we hold in our mind are, are actually lenses into the world and actually filter uh, what we find to be important or unimportant around us. And so therefore, I've given a lot of thought to, you know, what are those foundational lenses that have shaped my own perceptions as I've gone through the world and, and you know, upon reflection, what are the perhaps distinct um, opportunities I've been given throughout my educational and professional background that have allowed me to see certain things differently or perhaps uh, prioritize certain signals uh, in that noise of uh, the communication landscape that we have today that aren't perhaps um, the typical signals that are, that are focused on in education or in the professional world. And a huge one of those early on in my, uh, in my educational background was uh, evolutionary psychology and understanding the, uh, the emergence of humanity, human culture, human society from the world of biology and attempting to think through what the implications are of uh, humans actually having this sort of continuous emergence out of this space of uh, evolutionary constraint and trying to understand uh, at, a, at a really deep level, you know, there's always this question that, you know, it's kind of in the common knowledge uh, domain of, of nature versus nurture, but I got very interested in this idea of you know, nature and nurture as this mutually informing feedback system, right? And we don't have to necessarily look at it through the lens of a dichotomy. I mean, yes, there's a tension in that feedback system to some extent, um, but this mutual information of, of sort of biological um, tendencies that are selected um, at 
within the domains of, uh, of animals far beyond humans, but then you know, how do those give rise, rise to uh, this degree of freedom that we've created in terms of culture, this increasingly uh, expressive domain of language or money or all these symbols that we're able to use to reflect back to ourselves meaning that is riding atop this biological infrastructure. And, you know, we can, we can dive into that further in our conversation, but I think unpacking that, you know, was something that was very uh, crucial to my early education, something I've focused on quite a bit. Um, you know, there's a class in college that was sex, evolution, and human nature. And I think more than any other class I've ever taken in my life, that sex, evolution, and human nature course that built up from the bottoms of, you know, what is the function of sex in terms of allowing for various patterns of behavior to be selected for or against, um, showing how evolution then kind of almost turns that into a technology and explores all of these various behavioral niches using this technology of sex um, in many different ways, and then understanding how that informs human nature, human customs, human systems, human technologies, the top all of that. And so if there's anything that my course would focus on uh, at, its, at its center, uh, it would be that platform from which to build the rest of our perspectives and understandings of, of what we are, how we see the world, how we interact with each other, um, our epistemic platforms, how we know what we know, uh, what we think we know, the limitations of that knowledge. But it would all start at uh, that core of emergence of, of what we consider humanity from life itself. Mm -hmm. So your course would begin basically with limitations. You say, look, here's, here's our constraints. Here's our evolutionary constraints. Here's possibly our psychological constraints. Let's see where you go from there. I'm, I'm interested to see. So you, you know, obviously beginning from the evolutionary question of. So can I, can we pick just just one thing there? Um, I mean, limitations. This idea of constraint is interesting because of the fact that you know, it's it's easy to think of it as limitation, but um, maybe we can get into this later as well. But some of the most promising, I, I think, some of those promising outlooks on this concept of emergence have much to do with uh, instead of addressing it as a question of, of something more than was there, like uh, the whole being more than the sum of its parts. That actually, that idea creates a lot of, um, a lot of philosophical or logical uh, problems when you actually try to understand where that more comes from. And there are some very interesting explorations of this concept of emergence that are really entirely constraint focused and actually understanding life and complexity and increasing complexity of, of manifested behavior as a reduction of the absolute number of possibilities. And so we, we tend to think of constraints as inhibiting or limiting, but uh, I think actually some of the most promising visions with respect to the future of understanding emergence have to do with seeing constraints as the primary enabling factor of all complexity and order on Earth. Mm -hmm. Well, e e evolution is just a process of, of sustainable and selected constraints in that sense, right? Yeah, or, or, or selected, um, constraints interacting with one another to create patterns that are uh, recapitulable or regenerable, right? That can essentially recreate themselves across time and that have some sort of function that increases their stability uh, or, or performance that is selectable, right? Which is interesting because that ties back into that question of evolution and what actually is visible to selection. And, uh, you know, that's, that goes, ties back into this question of, of sex as a technology because sex as a technology actually increases the selective visibility of uh, the kinds of recombinative patterns of these constraints that actually generate uh, behaviors that are desirable within some context and across some 
horizon or some time um, at some characteristic time scale, mm-hmm. which is another really interesting problem. And, you know, we can get into that maybe, especially with respect to this conversation we want to talk about uh, in terms of money uh, and in terms of economic communication, because, you know, that question of time scale and, and what we're actually selecting for and how the different facets of our economic behavior um, have their own characteristic timescales, and often those characteristic timescales interfere with one another in terms of priorities, right? It's kind of like this question of, well, are we optimizing for uh, the needs of today? How many people are optimizing for the needs of today versus you know, the limitations of, of seeing into the future by a week or a month or a year if 80% of society can't see past today because their needs are not met today? Uh, the tensions of all of those different timescales interacting at once. So, yeah, I mean, this all of this is deeply interrelated. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm just to, sorry, Sam, go ahead. Yeah, um, just to jump in there, um, seeing how constraints actually maps onto some of what we'll come to talk about in the, like uh, further on down in this conversation, uh, would, would you say that you kind of see constraints as um, l- limiting the space of potential action? I, I, I generally think about it like um, a tree, like you need to limit the space that uh, you can kind of grow in, in order to achieve higher levels of, of freedom. So a tree can't grow in all directions at once in order for it to achieve a certain, um, to, to achieve a certain level of, let's just say height, but at certain amounts of freedom, things that you're free to achieve, you must constrain the landscape of potential action so that you can kind of go in that direction. And just an analogy, like bringing this to um, societies, like we must limit people's freedom to, you know, to only drive on one side of the road or not to murder or to do certain things so that we can live in a world where we have, uh, you know, access to healthcare and where we can build things like Large Hadron Collider. Like we must constrain the space of potential actions so that we can achieve these, what you could think of as freedoms. Does that map onto that? Yeah, certainly. And I mean, there's there's a whole domain of people exploring this. I mean, there's a philosopher, uh, his name is Terence Deacon. Uh, you know, there's also some biologists, theoretical biologists, uh, Monteville and Masio, um, who have been doing a lot of work on constraints as a uh, enabling aspect of a biological organization and emergence. Um, Stuart Kaufman has done a lot of, of work on that as well in, in terms of this idea of constraints enabling work cycles, which directly relates to what you're talking about in the sense that we think of how a piston works, right? Like we think, we, we look at a lot, you know, uh, we, we focus on, tend to focus on the schematics of, of sort of the fuel and it's, uh, the combustion and, you know, that combustion driving a piston and the piston driving work, but there can be no work without the restriction of the piston, right? And what is the piston doing? The piston is ensuring that um, certain degrees of freedom are not explored by the gas in question uh, as that gas explodes, right? It's reducing the overall degrees of freedom or where that gas can go. And, and that is the fundamentally enabling reality of what allows for that work to occur. And uh, philosophers like Deegan, you know, they take that fundamental thermodynamic idea and they actually build from there certain ideas of uh, other kinds of cognitive cognitive constraints, thought as what he calls something um, he labels uh, teleodynamic work, right? This idea of being able to uh, internally within our own minds allow for the manifestation of certain cognitive systems that constrain one another. And in that constraint, uh, you know, this is what we call thinking, <laughs> we're able to do this kind of purposeful mental work. Uh, you know, he builds all the way up from that fundamental level of thermodynamics, you know, 
into this, you know, through through the levels of, 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 of thermodynamic systems interact, interacting with one another uh, and constraining patterns to create complex um, yet permanent dissipative systems like a whirlpool, for example, right? Um, this idea of like a whirlpool being a process that has its own dynamic constraints, um, but it's not necessarily anything that you could point to easily um, from a perspective of, of, of what is there, right? Like this is exactly why it's hard to understand emergence because you say, well, what is that whirlpool? And uh, you know, what's actually happening to, to, to produce it? And you can't actually say that in any static sense it exists without the entire system around it pushing energy through some set of constraints generating uh, a pattern uh, that is, you know, performing this dissipated process of, of, of essentially facilitating entropy overall while producing order locally. I know, Sam, that's something that you're, you're quite interested in from a number of angles, this question of uh, entropy and information processing as a, as a generator of order in the world. And uh, that's another deep principle that, uh, that deserves much more study and, and much more widespread knowledge and consideration. Yeah, and I think that'll probably fit into our discussion on capitalism, which I think James might lead us into. But um, yeah, I, I think it's um, when we, when you start digging into these things, um, it gets pretty hairy in a way because it's just they're connected to everything. You know, it, it's and that might sound trite, but uh, it, it's the truth of it. You know, when you think about uh, energy, information, freedom, constraints, um, you can't pull apart, I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is you can't pull value or you can't extract value or uh, tease it out apart from the systems that we're describing. So uh, like how do we, yeah, how do we act in the world? Uh, how do we do so on a, how do we do that on an individual level and at a collective level, like value, um, like what we should do is inextricably connected to an understanding of how these processes come to be and develop and evolve across time. Yeah, I mean, we are, <laughs> we're, we're, we're restricted to having this conversation using words and we have to use this word we call value. And then we have to identify, well, what are we talking about when we're talking about value? And, you know, that question isn't necessarily isolated to uh, the 21st century uh, and the people on this planet right now, you know, this idea that we get to somehow define what this word means outside the context of, of the continuous evolution of behavior that's given rise to us is a strange idea. So then the question is, well, how does the how does the term value connect to that history? And you know, it seems like at, at the most generic level, before you want to you know, get specific in terms of different people's perspectives on value, it has to have something to do with those behaviors that enable us to keep this game going. That enable us to, to actually survive as, as individuals or as families or as communities or as societies. Um, there has to be something in the process of interaction and relation that we find valuable, right? Like we have to see value in light of the fact that uh, we want to keep this game going, right? Uh, like it, it's unclear to me that if we were an entirely nihilistic society that you could even have a concept of value, right? Because the concept of value presupposes the concept of, of desiring continuation. And so, you know, I think kind of, I, I begin with this notion of, well, how do we understand value from the perspective of our interactions with one another uh, in light of the fact that we're all part of this much larger 
inertia through time and space of some process of humanity increasingly complexifying its interactions uh, that that enables this tension uh, or that it's like this this dynamic tension uh, in a lot of my writings I talk about this tension between individual autonomy and collective agency and that's always there regardless of the scale you're talking about whether it's a family and there's the individual autonomy of, of any member of the family versus the collective agency of, of that family itself right like not every family member can do everything that they want at every given point in time while the family could in theory act coherently like let's say you want to go on a road trip as a family right that requires a certain amount of, of collective agency because if, if one family member at a pit stop sees a butterfly and wants to chase it forever for example it's going to interfere with the collective agency of the, of the family to actually go where it wants to go and, and arrive at its destination and that's just a very simple example, right? But like, um, think about our, our general, our deep questions of, of political liberty, uh, political freedom of speech, right? This idea of what is the collective organism doing when simultaneously it's trying to balance each individual's ability to explore reality and pursue some sort of path that is of interest or value to that individual while simultaneously attempting to balance all of the ways that you know, as those different interests integrate or fail to do so, um, the entire collective must retain some amount of coherence. And why does it need to retain some amount of coherence? Well, you know, it's interesting from the current perspective. I mean, think about someone who's extremely upset with the way America is going right now, uh, yet doesn't necessarily want to find themselves in 10 years under the regime of the CCP. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? Because to some extent, our collective agency is the only thing that shields us from some other collective entity with high collective agency, you know, coming and actually exerting dominance over our um, space and the processes that we've developed here across history. And so, you know, this, this, this tension between collective agency and individual autonomy as, as an informational adaptive um, process, right? Because the abstraction of the collective can't get information and can't make decisions as an abstraction. It all has to flow through individual units of, of intelligence, right? Like these are what's kind of called the terminal units in, in most complexity theory um, kind of perspectives on the world. It's like the units that where the barber beats the road, like in, in your circulatory system, you know, that's your capillaries. It's where the actual blood cells the actual hemoglobin, the actual red blood cells are, is able to actually give oxygen to the cells that need it, right? And then actually return to this circulatory system um, and and actually become part of the higher order flow that oxygenates it again. Or if you're talking about a political system, it's you know individuals who are living their lives but then contributing information with their votes. And that information is aggregated um, at a slower cycle of collective agency uh, in terms of that democratic mechanism. Or if you're talking about the sort of Hayekian perspective on the economy, every transaction of two terminal nodes or two agents is providing uh, a piece of information about the relative worth of something, which across the entire population, you know, this price signal emerges. Uh, and that price signal can be used to effectuate more um, collective agency in terms of allocating resources to a given process of whatever the price signal is, is talking about.
So, you know, that's another deep pattern that has to do with this question of value. And I think, you know, when we use this word value, we're pointing to all of these processes and all of these tensions. And, um, you know, whether we know it or not, we embody that, we act that out with every decision we make and everything that we decide to pursue uh, or not in terms of our sort of scope of preference and, uh, and value. Just, I mean, just to jump back a tiny bit, just to pull, maybe pull some threads together in relation to what we've been talking yeah. about so far. What's your, what is your sort of psychological leaning? Because it seems so far that it's, you know, in relation to value decisions and then in there is mimetics in a way, this idea of, you know, uh, a mimetic rivalry or mimetic decision. Um, it seems that your, your psychological basis is, has a leaning towards sort of behaviorism or, or would I be wrong with that? Um, you know, I, I, I would, I wouldn't see myself that way. Like I, I understand, like, I think that there's, it's not that I don't value the insights of behaviorism because I do think that from a, um, it's, the information one can glean from an extrinsic analysis of agents and their behavior is useful. Like there's information, right? But it also omits the entire internal domain. So I kind of look at that as, you know, you're omitting all of the underlying um, emergent processes that give rise to that behavior. And you're just saying that we can, um, we can reclaim or, or you, you know, you could think of it as saying, if you were to be a, a pure, pure behaviorist, and you would you would kind of make the claim that all emergent evolutionary behavior has been a kind of compression algorithm that is lossless and can be decompressed by a close observation of behavior, right? You can reclaim all the information necessary from the external observation of the bottom-up process and its behavior visible from the outside. I don't think that that is entirely true. I think that like, there's some amount of information, uh, a high amount of information that can be reclaimed from close external observation and behavior. But I think the entire world of phenomenology, the idea that part of what's happening at every moment is the interaction of a particular frame of reference, a particular path of emergence through the world, uh, and, and that's interacting with what is so-called objective reality and making meaning out of that constantly is an insight that we have for too long in the modern age overlooked. Uh, and it, I think it's just now gaining traction. I think, unfortunately, it mostly gained traction initially through the sort of postmodern lens of philosophy. But I think that there's there, there are more productive ways of looking at phenomenological insights and understanding that, um, you know, to the extent that we can talk about objective reality, what we're talking about you know, are the slices of uh, the world that are of sufficient permanence and stability for many people uh, with many values and many perspectives to come to those experiences and still have shared overlap, right? And, like, and that's a slice of the world that's really meaningful around which we have to cohere, I think, for us to be able to, to do anything as, as, as collectives, right? Like we can't entirely be in our own worlds linguistically or you know, with our own symbols of, of value, um, we can't have an entirely solipsistic, an entirely self-centered and self-contained perspective. We have to communicate because we are each partial. We each only hold one thread, right? I mean, this is this is an age-old idea, like the story of the the men, or the, the philosophers, or the sages and the elephant. Right? Like each each puts their hand on a different part of the elephant, and it's only through dialogue that they 
could even theoretically realize that they're touching an elephant. Otherwise, they're going to think that they're each touching some different type of creature or different type of thing. And so, you know, humanity has known this for a long time, that, that each of our perspectives is partial. Um, but I think for, for quite some time, the Western canon has, uh, has, has leaned so heavily into the idea of the objective um, you know, with good purpose. It's, it's made a lot of progress there in terms of manipulating the external world. But it, it, it also biases away from um, a much deeper understanding of how each of our own paths through the world impacts what we perceive as valuable and how we contribute useful information to the table. And in a world where we're now increasingly tying every individual together in real time at the speed of light, we need a much deeper level of insight into that latter, into that latter set of ideas, into this notion of how we do integrate these perspectives, even if those perspectives are in theory, not always in alignment or agreement, right? And this idea that there's an absolute truth, it tends to produce a lot more friction and heat because it creates the frame of reference that every conversation should in theory converge to a singularity of truth, a singular point. And, and that singular convergence process, um, you know, if that's your assumption, if that's your axiomatic uh, idea coming into a conversation, as opposed to the idea that like, actually maybe we're holding different perspectives uh, around the same object and we need to stitch them together. And we're never going to agree that we see the same thing, but what can emerge out of our conversation can be a better uh, or more accurate picture of the world. Like that perspective, I think is something we need much more of in the world today. Uh, this idea of, of, of exploring disagreement as, as co-discovery of, of why it is that we differ um, what it is that we value and the fact that evolution and, and adaptation has actually conserved many of those different perspectives and values as a sort of pluripotent mix of potential that can be brought forth in humanity at any given time based on what the needs are of our situation because those needs change over time. Um, and I think that's a really core insight, which is another reason why I think this idea of, of, of teaching through the lens of sort of adaptation or evolution and emergence is so powerful because it, it does, you don't assume, you can't assume that you can just discover a truth, put it on the shelf and forget about it. Uh, from the perspective of evolution and, and, and adaptation, you understand that you know, the niche in, in which you're adapting or evolving or the, the landscape upon which you're evolving is constantly changing based on the actions and reactions of every other agent on that landscape. There is no such thing as being able to have a have, have a fixed perspective forever, um, and essentially um, essentially be able to categorize that as objectively permanent. Um, now, I know plenty of people will disagree with that in, in terms of you know talking about things like gravity or whatnot, and that's a much deeper conversation um, in terms of the way that we even talk about or or represent. Um, patterns such as uh, mathematical patterns and, and physical patterns but but yeah just to make something you mentioned there i guess a bit more explicit and to make sure at least i'm understanding what you were saying about the, mm -hmm. uh, the plurality of perspectives within you could say like the human social organism you're saying that what i was taking from that is that we have conserved um the uh, in human populations um, a variety of different perspectives which are somewhat innate which 
cause people to see the world fundamentally differently. And it's only through the collaboration, it's, it's through the communication of these differing perspectives that we can achieve a, what you could say, a more accurate or a more truthful representation of what is actually going on. Um, when it's truthful being like asymptotic, not 100% truthful, but like developing a, a model together through dialogue that is a better representation of what's actually going on. And then it's actually fundamentally necessary for these divergent perspectives to exist um, in order for us to achieve that, um, that better, that a more accurate collective map. So liberals and conservatives, um, that might be making it far too simple, but they are like the, the term, it's the terminology that we use. It seems like from the psychological literature that there is something innate about these, like that these political leanings, that there is something that we are born in a certain, that we are born to, to lean in a certain direction, regardless of the environments we're exposed to just by nature of our constitution. And that that is it actually necessary to inform or to enable us to uh, navigate the world collectively. So I just want to make sure that that's kind of what you were getting at. Um, yeah, I mean, so that, that, that's, more on that's, the same exactly, page. that's exactly what I'm getting at. And I, you know, it's, it's interesting because of the fact that it, it occurs at, at multiple levels of analysis as well. You know, you have, you have the encodings of, of this kind of diversity of, of perspective, uh, at the level of what, what psychologists call personality, right? Mm -hmm. you know, these are multiple dimensions that we've shown to exist, um, in, in pretty stable ways throughout, uh, people's lifetimes speaking to. What you're what you're talking about with respect to people's predispositions, right? That that you're born with, uh, not necessarily that these are fixed across life. They aren't. Um, they can adapt and change based on what you uh, lean into and in your behavior. And if you're someone who, uh, let's say, is, is extremely uh, like high anxiety, there are things that you can do about that to to change the natural predisposition across time you can parameterize it now you're probably never going to move the needle all the way to the other side of that spectrum um but yeah these are these are sort of you could you could almost look at them as a sort of initial conditions or like starting positions right and you know yes um within complex systems right there's this idea of uh, sensitive dependence on initial conditions right so it's like if you have your dials set to a particular sensitivity um, initially, that's going to make you more sensitive to certain information in certain environments, right? Like if you're an extrovert, you're going to be more likely to pursue engagement with social environments. You're going to probably have more conversations with a wider variety of people. That's going to probably re, you know, basically create a feedback mechanism where you're going to strengthen that resolve to do more of those activities. And across time, that's going to lead you to explore a particular slice of the world that an introvert is not going to be exploring because the introvert is going to be spending their time perhaps perusing the depths of, of, of history or of you know philosophical writing or of computer games who knows exactly but you know there are these low level settings and then there are you know at every single layer of our society there are different elements of our culture that tap into that and reinforce those different paths and so it's not to say that people with initially different settings can't cross over or, you know, their paths can't cross or they can't evolve across time. But it is to say that it's, it's interesting to think about what it means that evolution conserves these different 
not just perspectives in the way we think about it in terms of like, I hold a perspective. It's a conscious idea that I hold in my mind and can dispense with if I consciously choose to do so, but much deeper predispositions in terms of what we are, what we are sensitive to, what we are attracted to, uh, where we find value, uh, where we find threat, uh, and, and how that, because of the nature of our lives and our, our past to the world being this process of, of interaction and reciprocal feedback with different contexts, you know, development of those paths across time has so much to do with the kind of information that any individual can then bring to a conversation or to a group or to, I mean, and this is, this is what people, I think in the best forms of conversations about diversity, let's say, and in the, in the best forms of you know, what that means, um, that's what we're talking about, right? That's what we're talking about when people bring, you know, the best of themselves that others don't hold to the table such that we can collectively put that together and, and use that uh, in a way that has never existed uh, and therefore create some sort of uh, new perspective or new idea or new capacity. Uh, you know, and that's extremely good. Um, it's extremely helpful and useful and, and valuable. So yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a deep question. It exists everywhere at every moment. Um, and we're constantly engaged in this question of, how are we, you know, what part of, even what part of ourselves? I think this is an interesting psychological question. I think about this all the time myself. It's like, what part of myself am I bringing out through my actions? Like if I get on Twitter and spend 20 minutes in a rage cycle on Twitter, like what is that actually doing to my frame of mind for the day? Am I less or more likely to engage in the work that I find useful in the long term? Uh, even if I try to engage it, am I, am I less likely to actually have the, sort of openness of, uh, of curiosity and engagement and, and presence of mind um, compared to if I had, if I had had some sort of other morning ritual that was perhaps more, more um, orienting and, and calm and uh, sane. Right. And so it's like, and you can make examples like that of, of almost any interaction you have on a daily basis, because each moment in time is dependent on the previous moments in time. So, you know, it is, it is worth conscious attention, I think, by, by every person who wants to live a conscious life and, and wants to live the best life they can live to, to actually consider you know, how each investment of each moment emotionally, psychologically, uh, cognitively is shaping those future moments, right? The subsequent paths that they're going to take and, and, and the paths of those around them. Uh, this is our personal responsibility, I would say, uh, and our responsibility for those we care about. Uh, uh, the risk of drastically... Uh, simplifying capitalism and also quite a clunky segue into the conversation of capitalism. <laughs> the the idea that you were speaking about of conflicting, you know, disagreements and conflictions between people in terms of what where we're going, what we're agreeing on, this idea of a, a single sort of teleology for any discussion. Would you basically say that capitalism is the, is one part of it at least, is its importance as a social function which allows basically to go, look, here's something which has proven something else. So somebody is right. So once everyone is within capitalism or is un under however you want to phrase it, it's the, it's not a system itself, right? It's a non-system because it subsumes everything into it whilst still remaining capitalism somehow. So it's the system which subsumes the whatever into it which it sort of deems as truth. So it's sort of a truth finding mechanism in a way. Would you see capitalism that way or am I completely off base? 
You know, I, I, I can totally understand where you're coming from. And I think that a lot of the, you know, many of the patterns you're describing have much to do with um, what the image of capitalism is in most people's minds. I think the interesting thing, I, the, the hard part I have with this frame of reference of capitalism is that historically speaking, um, you know, it was, it was initially created as, as mostly a pejorative, uh, you know, this idea of, uh, this idea of capital and this idea of capitalism was initially brought onto the scene, um, as a, as a mode of, of attacking those who were, let's say, leveraging, um, money or capital, uh, as opposed to direct labor. And, you know, it's, so I think like, this whole frame of capitalism is almost this interesting idea of a reappropriation of a, of a, of a term of denigration, like this idea there's an insult. This happens today all the time, right? Like, let's say there's an insult directed towards a community. That community will often take that insulting word, flip it and start using it internally, uh, rehabilitate it. And then, you know, change the sort of context to from a negative to a positive, which is very much what happened with this, this word capitalism. I mean, these people who were being denigrated as capitalists, decried as capitalists, uh, decided to say, well, okay, you know, we'll be proud of, of this thing you're accusing us of. And so it's hard to talk about the nomenclature without talking about, you know, this question of, well, when people were looking at uh, this, the negative aspects of concentrating certain flows of resources and industrial processes, and they were looking at inequality, and they were looking at some of the more acute consequences of, um, I would say, feedback processes, right? Uh, and then they labeled it capitalism. Um, did that label really capture the depth of the pattern required to talk about the phenomenon in question? Um, and I think this is, my answer to that would probably be something like, well, the simple answer is, is no, because fundamentally what we need to understand is that, you know, the, I, the tendency of our symbols to, the tendency of, of human symbols to incompletely capture underlying reality, but also be useful and therefore um, create a sort of distortion between the symbol and the actual process is, is like, that's a much deeper process than, you know, 18th and 19th century industrial exploitation, right? Um, the idea that, you know, if, if people, if you create a representation uh, of, like, let's say that, you know, you're operating 2,000 years ago and you're a king and you're responsible for the management of, uh, of, the, far, of the farming in your territory so that your population isn't going to starve, right? And you need a way of representing which farmers have brought what to your grain source and you need to understand uh, how many people you have and whether or not you're going to have enough grain or you're going to have a rebellion on your hands, um, you will then create some sort of symbolic accounting method, which is actually some of the earliest forms of human writing that we have on record. It's like essentially accounting methods. Um, but not only do we have forms of writing on hand, we also have little, you know, miniature sculptures that were placeholder representations for different types of, of cattle or grain. Um, but then there's this interesting question that comes up, which is like, okay, well, as soon as you symbolize reality and then you put faith in the symbols, if the symbols are corruptible, there's a temptation for someone to take advantage of manipulating symbols uh, or the fact that those symbols are concentrated um, to change reality in their favor, right? <laughs> um, and so like these processes uh, are, are extremely generic. And so 
capitalism is is just it's hard for me to even know what's being pointed to, which is why when I wrote that paper, uh, you know, Crypto Beyond Capitalism, The Rise of Distributed Valorism, you know, I wanted to point toward this idea that well, what we're really trying to get at is how we talk about and how we represent value and whether or not the tools we've used to represent that value throughout time thus far um, are sufficient to get us where we where we want to go, given the increasing complexity of the world. Right? Like, and I use these ideas. I, one example I gave in that was, you know, consider consider stoplights. Right, you have a yellow, red, and a green, depending on where you're at in the world. Light, and they're in a vertical column. Um, that gives a certain amount of information to the drivers to tell them whether to stop, slow down, um, or drive. And basically there's this question of how much information is carried to be minimally effective. And in theory, you could reduce the information by saying, we're going to compress this further because we don't want to spend the money on the different color lights or we don't want three lights. So you could either say we're gonna have one light that switches between red, yellow, and green, or you could say we'll have three lights and we'll just have blue lights and it'll just be by position, right? Well, let's say you implement those blue lights by position. Um, yeah, the information is there. If you have, if you understand what position the light is in, you could act appropriately. But the probability that you're going to have greater amount of accidents uh, is much is going to be much higher. I mean, I think intuitively everyone can understand that forcing people to understand the position of a, the same color light relative to having numerous um, dimensions of signal, like being a the position and b uh, the color of the light, uh, you're not going to have as effective of the signal, right? And so what you see over time with money, the reason I bring this up is because a similar process has, has happened with money over time is that we've, we've compressed all of these really deep complexities of human value and behavior into uh, a unit of account that essentially provides one dimension of price um, for any anything that is brought to market or any service that is offered. And, you know, that's extremely efficient it's a compression algorithm that's extremely efficient, especially because it can be mapped onto a single currency. So let's say that you know you were in a pre-modern era and you had to bring all of your goods to market. Um, you know, if you had to negotiate in twenty different currencies at every moment, uh, that's a lot of friction. It makes it much less efficient or effective in terms of having a, a marketplace that can function in an increasingly complex world. So we had this selection function that was really selecting for simplicity. Uh, fungibility of currency, simplicity of the signal uh, in question. But that compression leaves out some information. Like it compresses away information. Right? You don't capture all of the ways in which someone can value a cow uh, through the price of a cow. You, you, know, you compress a lot of it in there, but uh, not all of it. And then the question is, well, is there a point in time when the complexity of the world passes a threshold where the information that you're compressing out through a low dimensional price signal actually starts to matter, right? You, you actually need that information somehow. And then there's this question of, can you reclaim that information? Can you, can you bring back out that information from this overly compressed price signal? And I think, you know, when I wrote that essay, one of the points I was trying to make is that from the macro perspective, I see crypto and this movement that we're, uh, part of right now, seeing this, this, this explosion of all of these different price signals as a way of trying to understand 
can we add new layers of information signaling onto these previously heavily centralized, heavily managed unidimensional price signals such that we get a lot more information uh, and a lot more pricing accuracy, even in the underlying single dimensional price, but we get a lot more activity going on and a lot more representational power around that because we can actually use different cryptocurrencies to represent different dimensions of value that, that actually, going back to our earlier conversation, appeal to people with different personality characteristics or different perspectives or different histories or different, you know, cultural considerations, right? They're, they're, uh, the farmer in the Midwest is, is differently, you know, uh, differently predisposed to which cryptocurrencies they might be interested in uh, compared to the coder in San Francisco. And, and that's a good thing because what that allows us to do is actually recapture information in that process of moving from perspective and action and the actual reality of an individual human being and their life and their behavior to the abstract signal of a one dimensional price and then actually have intermediaries where you can, you can get information out of that process uh, uh, and do other things with other additional processes. One of which is, is, is what idea market is doing saying, you know, there's a price signal associated with this typically unpriced good of people bringing perspectives to the table. Um, in the current marketplaces, the currently economic, the current economic incentives, uh, in, in the currently economically incentivized platforms that exist, what's the selection function? Well, the selection function is managed by a centralized company who's trying to maximize engagement to sell ads. They're not necessarily incentivized to select for the best ideas because that would actually require them to have some idea of what the purpose of those ideas is, is actually working for, right? And it doesn't care about because that's not what it's incentivized to care about as an economic entity. But idea market could in theory bring that out of, of, of this content by having tools that allow people to understand, you know, well, what are these ideas working up towards? Like how do they stitch together? Who should be talking? What project should they be working on? All of these things are, are latent value signals that exist in people's conversations every day on social media and Twitter. But it's right now being sort of, outgassed into the uh, the friction of uh, the friction of conflict as opposed to harness that has worked, right? And the, that goes back all the way to the initial conversation we were having on constraints because it's all about finding the right sets of constraints that can turn that just general energy into useful work, right? And, and that has a lot to do with creating better signals around uh, what information is worthwhile. So that was that was a bunch of stuff. I kind of went mm. a few places there, but I'm happy to well. pull any thread or, or revisit any of that. Yeah, no, you started and finished in exactly a place that I agree with, res with respect to language is lossy, representation is lossy, and anytime we're uh, representing something or communicating something in any way, we have to decide what to include and what to exclude. And there's nothing objective about that. That is a personal judgment. And if it becomes embedded in culture, then it becomes kind of a cultural judgment. Like it's not any one person responsible for it, but the same activity is happening. So there's you know a really important evolution happens at the metaphor level where you kind of switch lenses and switch stories because each metaphor, each story inherently highlights and makes different curation decisions about the things that are getting 
excluded from the lossy mechanisms. Like we're not we're not going to be able to communicate things perfectly in any foreseeable or imaginable future. Um, but we're definitely at this sort of um, metamorphosis phase where the limitations of the old metaphors are really coming up against the wall of technological change, that we have all these new abilities and social and informational realities now that the model that has worked for thousands of years does not is not a good fit for and just can't be a good fit for. And so um, I like the way you described idea market as kind of pricing something that's not priced yet. Well, we haven't really had the technology to price these things before, but now not only do we have the technology, we kind of have the necessity because the models of that existed before this technology don't work in its presence anymore. Does that kind of track? Is that kind of in the same vein as you were speaking? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like that, that loss of compression is, is fundamental as an idea for people to internalize. I think it's also, I mean, there's this interesting question between uh, also the, the idea of these lenses as choices, as conscious choices that we make uh, versus also um, just intuitive, um, unconscious or, or pre-conscious uh, ways that we engage with the world and tools that we can use to um, make us perhaps more consciously aware of those pre-conscious filters that we have in place. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly fascinated by this obsession people have with the political dimension of this all, right? you know, this one-dimensional left-right spectrum. It's like, what would it be like to look at the world through the lens of, you know, the, the opposite uh, information bubble? It's like, well, okay, sure. But like, what about, what is it like to look at the, the world through the lens of an artist or through the lens of like someone who's in, interested or obsessed with, with math or, you know, different types of minds in terms of the way that, like, I would love to have a, a plugin for Twitter that allowed me to sort of like go through, like change the dimensions of personality. And then it would make different tweets like glow or something like that, right? To understand what is it that's attracting attention based on who you are, what you value, uh, and, and not just this one-dimensional political game, because you know, that's another thing that is, is so uh, frightening to me about the sort of entrainment and the polarization game that we're playing, because the stronger we entrain with that single dimension of political polarization, uh, the less information we're getting from all of the other possible dimensions of, of, of like, you know, perspectives in the world, like all the other ways of seeing events are essentially being left on the cutting room floor because the only perspectives that get amplified are those that have political utility as essentially weaponized mimetic um, ammunition, right? And, <laughs> and like the idea that the only information we're sharing is that which is useful for mimetic warfare is a, not only is that is that just sad, but it's also, I would make the case that that's nowhere near as effective as we could be in terms of, in terms of stitching information together for constructive purposes, for the purposes of actually building new tools, uh, creating real uh, progress on certain issues that people care about. I mean, like, it's a fascinating question. Like if we were able to, like the amount of energy and heat generated in this in this social media space, like it's being harnessed for extraction. 
if it's actually, if it could actually be har harnessed for sort of collaborative construction, the idea of what's possible there is, is quite mind blowing. I mean, it's, it's really, that's the hope that keeps me going <laughs> through a lot of this is that maybe, maybe one of these days we'll sort of wrap our heads around how to turn this reactor, this mimetic reactor that we've created uh, from a super weapon into something that is actually a, a source of sustainable, um, sustainable mimetic energy for, for, for driving people to sort of realize their better visions of, of the future and not like push those upon other people, but actually build them themselves in their day-to-day -day lives and the lives you know, of their communities, like creating uh, new tools of value, new processes of value, living out the lives that they're instead, uh, I guess, just sort of projecting on others daily on, on Twitter. And I can't, I can't stand entirely aside from that because uh, I fall into the pattern myself from time to time, not proud of it, but it's, it's a powerful, powerful attractor. Yeah, hundred percent. I think one of the one of the hard things to do is figure out a way to make these changes without really requiring anything of most people, because. A lot of people are are struggling to survive. They don't have time to figure out like why this approach is philosophically superior or whatever. Like there's kind of um, whatever whatever a solution might be has to be a lens that can be installed on people's behalf that they can just participate in or or naturally gravitate toward based on the way you set up the environment. Like if you have if you have a highway, people kind of know, don't walk on that. You don't have to put signs everywhere saying, don't walk on this because you'll get hit by a car and die. It's just kind of evident. And if we can design a social media atmosphere that makes better behavior or more productive behavior more obvious, more obviously reasonable, um, then it doesn't require people who are working two jobs and use Twitter for fun to relax in their spare half hour a day to like fuss really hard over new paradigms and shit. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I don't think generally speaking, uh, <laughs> generally speaking, I, I don't think that change tends to that like when, when you see something that's a paradigm shift, it doesn't, it rarely emerges with high energy um, on behalf of a large component of society early on. Right? It's typically, you know, this is just the, the adoption curve, um, you know, writ large in terms of every phenomenon. Like there are a certain set of people who really care or who are really into a particular idea and they're by nature going to be more involved with that earlier. Um, and then for the vast majority of people, it's only when, you know, something like uh, idea market becomes um, embedded in something else they care about, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 minutes a day, are they going to interact with it? Um, and I think that's fine. Like I, because, and I think that it's actually desirable because the converse of that requires a lot of coercion. It requires you to force people to care about things that they might not otherwise care about. And I'm always, uh, I'm always a, uh, a proponent of trying to attract, um, attract good behavior as opposed to force behavior of any desired type, because, you know, that is in some ways the, this, this sort of natural selection function. If you can't attract people, if you can't attract any, anyone to the pattern you're advocating, there's information in that, right? Um, regardless of how ideal one might think it is in the long term, 
you know, if there's no meaningful path to it, that's voluntary. That's a signal that, uh, it's a signal that you lack information about the side effects of your model at the very least, right? Like the fact that it's so difficult to move people into that space is, is, is telling you something. And then, you know, there are those types of people who, who don't want to listen to that information, right? It's a very common, these days that's very common. Right? This idea of like, no, our goal is 100% compliance and anyone who uh, refuses is going to feel pain, right? Um, well, what does that do? That creates a situation where, um, you know, where that small percentage of people are going to become very, uh, very active in ways that make the system even less predictable, um, that make it more chaotic, that generally move further away from, from your desired ends. Um, I mean, it's crazy how like, you know, these, these lessons have been with us for thousands of years, man. Like the Taoists had a lot of insight into this, uh, you know, even like extremely abstract mathematicians, like 150 years ago, we're talking about like the fact that, you know, ends to means reasoning, you know, if you pursue a goal, even a small angle, um, you know, once you get to that goal and you miss it, you basically create another goal to compensate for what you screwed up. And then you basically end up going in the opposite direction of where you thought you wanted to go over time. So it's like people have been trying to communicate the side effects, uh, the negative and unintended consequences of trying to force change um, on those who are not ready for that change for uh, perhaps the entire history of, of humans uh, pursuing goal-directed collective behavior. But, yeah, I mean, I don't like I, it's along those lines. I mean, maybe we should even get further into or open up like idea markets specifically and talk about you know how idea market is attracting um, is attracting a certain type of people and and what those people like how you see those people interacting with it as a platform early on and and what value that's generating around this space and and you know, how those individuals who are identified as valuable uh, on idea market, um, how they might be able to also add value to the platform or, or like leverage idea market as a, as a tool for them to, to come together or create more goods or services or you know, projects of value themselves. I'm interested to hear more about that. Yeah, well, the, uh... The market is still at a at a pretty immature stage, and the most of the activity that we're seeing is people buying things that they expect to blow up if the market blows up. Mm -hmm. So we're not seeing like the the new paradigm like taking form in idea market quite yet. It's really just about like mirroring the current status and information landscape which is why elon musk is toward the top and a you know vitalik tweet is at the top it's the slam dunk stuff we're not we're not at the point of um surfacing undervalued genius with millions of dollars quite yet but the um the ideas behind attract rather than compel are incredibly central to how this has been designed from the start um when i talk a lot about like um psychological economics that when new information comes you're not just uh weighing you're not just measuring the facts and say well which one is more true and then i'll just believe the truth everyone thinks that's what they're doing but actually there's all these calculations about social status 
and tribal allegiances and like, who will I become if I believe X? And if there's a really high cost to that, then it doesn't matter how true it is if you're not willing to also pay that cost. So there's this kind of the, the decision about whether to believe something is kind of economical at its core. It's not as abstract and, and logical as, uh, as it's often portrayed. And this is, this is fine. Like this is not a complaint at all, but what it means is in order to create a greater concern for truth, we really have to shift the economics that goes on in people's minds. And what I mean by that is right now, we're, we're basically always deciding when we encounter new information, for example, on the internet, am I going to prioritize status more and like my reputation and my, you know, standing with my community or prioritize um, truth and curiosity and like honest, honestly, whether I'm convinced by this or that more, there's kind of this continental divide in, uh, in, the, in the United States, the continental divide. I just learned this recently is a spot in the Rocky mountains that runs down continental America, where if rain falls on one side of it, it washes into the Pacific. And if rain falls on the other side of it, it washes into the Atlantic. And we kind of have this continental divide of the mind where anytime new information comes, there's a line where on which side we, on one side, we care more about status and reputation. On the other side, we care more about truth. And what idea market aims to do is add firepower to the truth side. By saying here you can actually you can make money now. We're we're adding, you know, economic incentives, financial rewards, the promise of wealth and status and influence, to the truth side, so that that continental divide of the mind just moves over a little bit like this, so that a whole swath of things that would have fallen on the status side, now fall on the truth side, and. It just by shifting the economic, the inner economic landscape of belief and persuasion and convincing and discourse, um, we can, without compelling anybody, create more open-mindedness and curiosity where it would have been closed off before. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it definitely does. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. It brings up some fascinating questions about sort of the, the social psychology around um, you know, the social psychology around what it means to be seen as purveying truth versus lies in, in the contemporary landscape. I mean, obviously this question of misinformation, disinformation, these are buzzwords uh, that are widespread in our online landscape right now. And, you know, it's this interesting, uh, it's not easy to understand, uh, given a piece of information, regardless of that, like let's say that that information could be known in terms of its true status, 100%. Um, even if it's known, it seems like we're existing in a landscape where if you put that information into the landscape, it's immediately distorted such that um, one, one side of a, of a given <laughs> divide will perceive it as truth and the other will perceive it as falsity. Um, almost, almost irrespective of the underlying truth value. It's almost arbitrary in the sense that like, if a few, if not for a few historical factors, an entire swath of the, the population could see an issue entirely differently, right? Uh, 
And, and like on top of that, you have like on top of that, that strange sort of instantaneous polarization of the perception of what's true versus what's not true. We also have this question of anyone, like this, this sort of like guilt by association taken to extremes that we've never seen before, right? Like associating with anyone who's even stated something that's not immediately reinforcing of, of a given team's perspective is now seen as this you know, equally guilty or, or shame worthy as having said something yourself. Um, so you have this sort of like connection shaming game that's being played as well. And so it's interesting to understand how one might shift the landscape towards a frame of reference that can be outside of that, right? Because that, like, that continental divide you're talking about, the idea that there's one side of that that is truth depends on anyone on that, like perceiving the world through that, like, on that side of the continental divide, not immediately or increasingly being caught up in this game of, of polarized information warfare. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe I can clarify a bit. I don't mean to say that like on one side of the divide is truth, but on one side of the divide is concern for truth. On one mm -hmm. side of the divide is the ability to be convinced of a new thing. And on the other is, no, I'm going to protect my reputation no matter what. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah. And like how, okay. So, um, this is an interesting question just in general, maybe we <laughs> it's a can of worms as always, but this question of, of truth and, you know, the definition of, of like, in, I guess in, in terms of like when you're making statements like that, that pursuit of, of truth, what is that? What does that look like? What is like, what is that value? Like, how does that value cash out? Like, what is truth in that sense? Um, how do we, how do we, like, what is someone pursuing that look yeah. like in their, in their actual behavior in the world? Like compared to someone who's out for status, um, someone who's out for truth does what? Yeah, that's a good question. And Mike, I think, I think, I think both. It seems oh, like the, go ahead. I do, I do have a, something to suggest here. And I think what distinguishes someone who, who is pursuing truth in a particular area, because I do think it's area-based. No one is completely rational or honest about everything. Um, but I think what, what truth-seeking kind of consists of is being willing to pay costs for it because our ability to care about things is finite and so anything that isn't about the truth is a uh, competition with it so in order to have the best information on a thing or to discover the truth about a thing it's only really possible to the extent that we prioritize that over whatever costs might stand in the way like pissing off your grandmother or losing some friends or becoming a different person politically or identity wise or something like that there are all these costs that you know emotional costs that have to be paid um, whenever we change our mind or, or become you know more informed about something in any meaningful sense so i would distinguish truth seeking as that as as paying a cost as being willing to pay costs um, for the for the for the sake of having truth as a primary concern or as a priority yeah, I mean, I think it's for me. A lot of these ideas seem inextricable from my, from concepts of, for example, trust. 
Um, and, and the role that this plays in our ability to, you know, within our own lives, but especially in the social realm uh, of people coming together and trying to understand where we've all come from, um, like what, what reality looks like today, how do we make sense of the present, and then how do we actually come together to plan for the future with any sense of some, any sense of um, continuity or certainty, right? Like this idea of stitching together past, present, and future into this kind of temporal map is an idea that I've been really interested in exploring in relation to trust. It seems to me that, you know, to trust someone is to be able to, uh, without sort of enforcement, uh, to be able to take their word for granted in terms of the fact that they're bringing to the table a high fidelity representation of their path to that moment, like their idea of the past, um, their representation of themselves, the world, and their intentions in the present, and then um, their intentions for the future, right? So, for example, like the, this essay, the, the example that I gave in you know, one of the essays that I wrote in that Crypto Beyond Capitalism series, this notion of, you know, if, if I'm sick, right, and I actually just was sick last week, but like, let's say I can't go to the grocery store, hey, uh, would you be willing to take this, you know, this hundred dollars and, and go get me some groceries, right? It's like, and if you say yes, we're at that moment in time, right, where the future's still ahead of us, and I depend on you, rely on you to say, like, I think I know who you are, I think I know I can trust you, I think I know you're being, you know, of high integrity in the moment, and then we're making this plan for our paths to diverge through time and then come back together with some set of agreements uh, holding true regardless of whatever temptations you might incur on the, on the drive, let's say to and from the grocery store, you know, if you're going by the casino or the, you know, I don't know what your vices of preference are, but um, you know, the ability to avoid those such that, you know, that map that we've created together can actually maintain its integrity. And then by you coming back to that point in the future that we plan together, we reinforce the ability to be able to the next time, maybe, Put a little bit more on the line and a little bit more on the line and a little bit more on the line and i think all of society is is, is actually this big process of us doing that together and building this very robust map of time and space together that we rely on as a society to be able to actually pursue any complex objective right and when i'm asked what i think this idea of truth is you know, because I'm, I'm much more on the sort of pragmatic side of the scale philosophically, it's like truth is the integrity of that map, right? It's like if there's this idea of gravity and we say gravity is true, well, why? Because we have an understanding of, of the continuity and, and the way that it affects things in a way that is, is so regular that even if someone tries to act against it, <laughs> they're almost immediately met with um, an example of the fact that they are incorrect, right? Functionally, right? Uh, but then we created this space of language and representation, this, and then you get into this map territory question uh, of, of, of representation of the world that's not directly associated with penalties or costs when you deviate from it. And this ties back into what you were saying about people paying costs, right? Be willing to pay prices for, for, um, for the truth. And I think what that means to me, at least, is this idea that uh, you need to maintain a connection between our abstractions um, and the, the cost of those abstractions leading us astray 
such that everyone ends up paying the price for the damage that that abstraction does to the temporal map of everybody if it's untrue, right? Because an untruth is kind of like a it's kind of like a little bomb that goes off and blows a part of that map apart. Um, and whoever depended on it can no longer use it. Um, and so, so, so we're saying we need you need temporal map insurance. <laughs> we need uh, paradigm insurance. I completely agree. I mean, to some extent, I mean, apparently like, that, that, it, it's interesting in that sense. And that's we try to build redundancy. And, and, and this actually, I know one of the topics, this is like a direct segue, at least in my mind, to this topic of, of proof of work and proof of stake, right? Because I think that fundamentally what we're talking about when we're talking about proof of work and proof of work mechanisms is this idea of maintaining the kind of relationship to the world that physical reality has by default, but representational reality does not necessarily have by default and can end up um, therefore allowing for people to move away from um, consequences increasingly in time and space, and then try to put those consequences on other people other than themselves, right? Like this is kind of like this parasitization question that I, I talk a lot about, which is this idea of like, to the extent that you can divorce your words and representations um, from consequences uh, for some large period of time, you can gain value, short-term value from doing so. Like if I can convince you that it's worth your while to, or like in that, in that example of, of going to the grocery store, let's stick with that, right? If you can say like, oh, actually the prices, I saw the prices, those prices are, um, you know, 50% higher than they were two weeks ago because of inflation, I, I need $150. And I'm not checking those prices and I'm not going to the store and I'm trusting you. You know, if you can convince me that my mental model is wrong and yours is right, even though it's not by words or images or whatever representations, you can take that extra $50, pocket it, give me the groceries, I'm none the wiser, but you know, there's been this distortion uh, of reality that you benefit, this local distortion of reality that you benefit from. And I think that like when we talk about the utility of mechanisms like proof of work, it's, it's recognizing that we are always going to have this problem of you know, representation versus reality. And it's ensuring that there's some mechanism to bring those back into alignment sequentially over time and check in with reality in a mechanism that can be trusted because it is resistant to the best attempts any nefarious actor would uh, you know would, would would make to corrupt it? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful distinction. Um, proof of work. The more I think about it, the more profound it seems in that respect. That it seems like an incredibly elegant uh, metaphor for how reality kind of works, uh, just actually. And there's just an infinite depth to that. And um, I, I think the comparison that, that you make is uh, really cogent. Yeah, I mean, I think like this this proof of stake idea, or the idea of, of of people coming together to agree on a hypothetical way of organization for a short period of time to explore a possibility. You know, that's a useful. That's the other side of this coin. Like, I'm not denigrating the proof of stake side of things. Like, in fact, I'm, I'm writing something right now that's trying to demonstrate the deep symbiosis between those two perspectives. But 
I think people tend to see proof of work and proof of stake as competing for the same uh, pole position, let's say, in, in this race or this, this infrastructure war. Um, and they don't really recognize the role that proof of work plays as a binding mechanism between extrinsic physical processes and the human imagination and the human imagination for, and the capacity for self-deception. Um, even, even in cases where that self-deception is positively motivated, well-motivated, well-meaning. Um, it's a very fine line between good faith exploration of the unknown and parasitism. Like, I mean, back in 2017, 2018, you know, people were criticizing ICOs a ton and, you know, for good reason to some extent. But one of the things I would say frequently was, you know, just because snake oil is always sold on the frontier doesn't mean it's not the frontier, right? The thing about a frontier is that because it's an unknown area, the, the, the context for what the standards should look like have not yet been established. And therefore, yes, it will attract all of the parasitic actors, but it will also attract perhaps a smaller fraction of, but in the long run, a way more impactful contingent of people who are genuinely interested in exploring the frontier. Um, and I think that to, to, to ensure that there's a sort of right relation or symmetry there uh, so that it doesn't go fully lopsided towards parasitism, you really need mechanisms that, that, that keep that attachment to, um, to extrinsic physical reality uh, that's not subject to just the human machinations of the mind. Do you have any ideas for how idea market can do that better? Can tie, you know, have some more extrinsic, you know, connections? I have well, some some thoughts on that, but maybe you're, you have something totally different. I mean, I think part of, well, so part of the insight that I've been exploring with respect to the relationship between proof of work and proof of stake is that in many ways, proof of stake is this exploratory pattern of, of hypotheses that are identifying certain sustainable or locally stable um, processes that could exist within possibility space. And then as people discover those, they can essentially connect to each other over time and become their own proof of work as they reference some sort of extrinsic part of reality itself, right? So like to some extent, what Idea Market is trying to say is that like, People are saying words online and those words online have some theoretically positive relationship to helping us steer the future in directions we prefer as opposed to those we don't prefer. And so um, I would think that to the extent idea market can show how um, it is facilitating the cooperation of people with, with high quality ideas, or helping to make some of those ideas more real, or helping uh, those ideas influence actual physical processes, because that's where the, the rubber meets the road between ideas and the exploration of those ideas through physical behavior, investment, resources, um, people people being willing to, to try on those ideas with the associated costs that they might bring, right? Um, and so, you know, I, Sam and I were talking about this the other day to some extent where it's like there's the price signal, but then beyond just the price signal of the individual putting the ideas out, there's this whole ecosystem of, you know, what impact those ideas are having, how they're, they're making their way through the mimetic fabric, 
how they're creating new social network connections and, and spinning off projects, whether those projects are succeeding or not, right? Like if you could show that there was uh, one memetic cluster that was actually out competing another memetic cluster in the types of projects that were spinning off of it and the traction they're finding in the world, right? That's actually showing uh, from a, like a pragmatic adaptive perspective that those ideas are, are capable of gaining more purchase uh, in a functional context. Um, now, what that means is another matter of subjective debate, right? Um, but, you know, it, it, it actually, at the very least, what showing the, what, what making that visible does is increase the accuracy of pricing, right? The very least. <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. Um, did you and Sam discuss the rating system at all by chance? Because I think there may be some proof of work-esque aspect to that too i don't think we i don't think we covered it in depth yeah okay. no, not not in depth so I, i'd be interested to hear what you mean you mean rating system beyond um price uh, rankings beyond price yeah. yeah 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 so something we're going to launch in the next couple of months is something that has been near and dear to me for a while and we've lovingly called it the blockchain of opinions but uh, it's really just a rating system so an idea market users will be able to rate URLs on a scale of zero to 100 in order to express kind of a general sentiment without defining it too carefully. Um, and what this will allow people to do is over time, we can look back and say, show me only the people who had this opinion about this topic at this time. And so it'll create this sort of memory, auditable memory of public judgments by anyone, basically. Yeah, I, I wish um, we had that starting in 2019. <laughs> me too. Oh, man. That's, that's oh, always man. the example that I use. Show me the people who were right about COVID before February 1st, please. Like, those are the people that, you know, there's, that I care I mean, about there's, right now. There's so much um, history erasure and, and sort of changing of tune happening right now. It's unbelievable. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So um, I'm hoping that will help create this sort of proof of work-esque, like almost a proof of prescience uh, mm -hmm. kind of thing so that uh, as history evolves and as opinions evolve and interpretations evolve, we can adjust our present day trust systems with reference to the history of the judgments made by the candidates for our trust. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm curious. How, like, how um, how is the quality of so? It's like you said this is a ranking system as well. So there's there's obviously some sort of um, you're saying a blockchain of these opinions that are expressed publicly, and then you're saying as well that there's some sort of uh, quality metric associated with these or ranking system associated with these. I'm kind of curious how you are understanding or looking at. Um, the evaluation process of, of the quality of an idea over time. Yeah, so the ratings on a scale of zero to 100 are free to express. It's just to create a record of what each person thought at time about topic, about mm -hmm. URL. Um, and we have, I've been trying to figure out what the right approach is to defining what the ratings mean. Mm -hmm. Do we say, this is unlikely and this is likely in my opinion. Do we say this is something that I think is 
valuable or not valuable or useful and useless? Like, how do you define the spectrum? And right now, you know, our best idea, in my opinion, is to be deliberately vague about it. Basically have thumbs up, thumbs down and let people interpret that how they like without like trying to over codify things because generally it will it will be used in the way that it's used and if we over codify it then that lets people say well i thought it was useful at this time because xyz it lets people kind of weasel out of it down the line so we're leaving it kind of deliberately vague because the use will emerge and kind of have a, an unstated uh meaning mm-hmm. um but the the rating system is completely independent of of the markets themselves. The markets are used to determine what do we want people to rate? That's the URL market. What are the topics and issues and bits of information that we think are really important to have judgment calls made about? And the other is the users. Whose opinion do we really care about? Who do we want opining on these things more than anybody else? So we use the two markets to kind of decide whose judgment we want on which topics, And then the rating system itself becomes like the filter that we can look at over time and see who's actually making the judgments that uh, we find valuable in the light of history. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I mean, does that answer your question? Does that answer what you were trying to ask? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, like, it opens up more more questions and it also, yes, does, does answer uh, the question that I was I guess it answers it to the extent that y'all have explored this, right? I mean, it's an open, it's an open space for a great deal of further exploration um, as we try to sort out this idea of how to make sense of opinion across time and, and how our perspectives on opinions shift over time as well. You know, it occurs to me that, you know, an opinion at a given point in time can be quite unpopular. Um, and you might see that reflected in your votes at the time, right? And then later on, if that's shown to be correct, popularity shifts, um, obviously you'd want to be able to capture that. Um, there's some sort of semantic aspect as well. And I think you were trying that you're referring to, to some extent with respect to how to, how to measure this. Uh, it seems like perhaps the ability to tag might be useful in the sense that you know, something might be uh, like just like generally dissenting opinion or, um, you know, insightful or intellectual or whatnot. Um, uh, Reform tagging is interesting because it also lends itself well to sort of cluster analysis later down the road. Right? A lot of interesting uh, questions about sort of the emergent semantics, especially now that there's so many uh, endpoints for that kind of semantic embedding now, the uh, kind of on the market that are increasingly um, accessible for analysis of sort of semantic meaning. Um, you might be able to just figure that out from people's words though, without allowing for, for tagging. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think about what it means for sort of, because there's the question of primary prediction, and then there's also this meta question of who's, like how, how people are evaluating the quality of prediction, right? The, the second order quality question, um, <laughs> the, the quality of the evaluators. So perhaps someone's not a very good predictor, but they're actually really good at evaluating other people's predictions, which would be a kind of a, a, a strange position, but maybe it's a thing. I don't know. I mean, I'm very fascinated to see where this goes. Uh, I think that just in general, accountability mechanisms are are extremely necessary right now. Um, this idea that uh, 
as our technology encourages us to generate more and more information daily and kind of erase our memories as we go, um, we develop a sort of free float. Free it's another form of free floating relation to the underlying territory, right? Um, the idea that we generate a, a culture that is increasingly lost in its own exhaust. So some like intellectual and verbal exhaust and like doesn't actually check back in with reality or doesn't even necessarily any longer have the tools to check back in with some extrinsic reality. Like if we wanted to, how would our society even do that right now? Right? Like if we're so deeply entrenched in this polarized perspective, uh, this polarized, this game of political polarization that, that distorts and lenses every piece of information, how do you even get back in touch with something outside of that? Right. Um, I think we're seeing that right now. I think we're seeing the, 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 like the battle for the frontier of checking back in with reality happening that yeah. every, every splinter tribe is, you know, has their own little, little flag of it. <laughs> and, you know, on one hand, on one hand, like we'll see, we'll see what the extrinsic reality turns out to be down the line kind of gradually. And on the other, the first place I would look is, is, the most outcast, you know, low status people in groups, because the, the less, the more you have to lose, the more likely you're going to prioritize saving that thing instead of losing it in order to figure out what's really going on. So uh, like idea mark is kind of designed to help orient people toward those low status, crazy fringe things because the, the emotional economics of that are, are the best. And that's why all the best information is on 4chan and where all the, all the crazy low status anonymous, you know, you know, uh, primordial ooze of chaos. That's, that's, that's where all the best stuff is. And it's right next to all the worst stuff, but there it is though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's fascinating that at every layer of society, if you study much of history at all, especially the history of science, you pretty quickly come to realize that, it's extremely difficult to to bring a novel idea to the table, especially when it's correct. It's like the, the strangest paradox, right? Because you think that if an, if an idea is new and correct, it should find receptivity amongst those who are most qualified to bring it into the uh, the sort of domain of, of truth, right? This idea, you know, this ivory tower of, of those who are in theory elected by society to maintain the boundaries around what is true, what is real, what is not. And, and, and in theory, we would expect for, for those people to be receptive to truth, to, to knowledge. And in, in reality, what we see is that the human tendencies, like as you're talking about, the, these social tendencies, these tendencies to uh, protect their territory, to maintain claims to status that they've earned through advocating uh, perspectives that might be undermined by new, by new models or new findings. Um, that tends to dominate uh, in the short run. In the short run, in the long run, reality always wins out. In the short run, you know, the human machinations and, and tendencies and all of our, um, all of the games that we play uh, for status and, and all the comp competition that we have in terms of like trying to acquire resources personally, like those, dramatically distort short-term perception of truth, right? Uh, especially around novel findings or, or novel explorations. And 
you know, I think that what y'all are doing is in many ways trying to accelerate that process by actually having seeds of signal, even in the short term, that can help orient people towards quality, emerging quality, or the quality of emerging signal, even though that's new and all of these status games and social shame games are being played around it for people's own local purposes. Um, if idea market can help establish track records and establish um, the integrity of those who are analyzing the quality of these signals, then we can help facilitate and steward that transition process from emergent signal into like new paradigm or newly acknowledged reality or fact or truth. Um, you can accelerate that. And I think that acceleration is absolutely necessary uh, in, in today's world that is operating at such higher speed. Uh, and if you, if you don't have something to help steward that truth into, um, into the wider consciousness and, and actually demonstrate that it does have value, even though those who have something to lose might be decrying it as uh, misinformation or disinformation, um, we're at risk of losing that information um, more quickly than ever right now without, without a, a technology or system like that, I think. So... And I'll just add to that that it's not only we're not only at risk of losing that information, but we are like this the trajectory that we're faced with existential threats if we do not develop the capacity to integrate information into like you could say collective knowledge and then act based on that. If our capacities are increasing, if if we are getting increasingly powerful and our the the impacts of our actions are felt faster and faster. If we if we lack the ability to to identify a signal and then you could say integrate it and amplify it and then act on it, then we could actually face um, the collapse of societies. Um, because if you if your map if you if the map of your world of if the map of the world that you're working on is just completely at odds with reality and you keep acting based on that, it could lead to to disaster. Yeah. I mean, the, the more complex the territory, the quicker the map is useless, right? And, and, and so it's like, the, the more complex the territory, the more it's changing every moment, and the better tools you need for, for A, making sure your map is staying in touch with reality, um, but also um, for updating, yeah, for, for making sure it's staying in touch with reality by having solid processes of, of updating, um, updating that map consistently. And then also, not just updating the map, right, but also deciding to do about the map <laughs> right? and then mm. sort of the trajectory of um, how things are, are, are updating, which is also a, a fascinating question, right? Um, I just read Neil Stevenson's new novel, Termination Shock. I don't know if anybody has read that as well or is familiar with it, but it is, I mean, it's interesting. One of the fascinating things I, I really enjoyed about it was this interesting exploration of um, you know, it's near future. Um, it's basically a book about um, the geopolitics of climate and the geopolitics of countries um, trying to understand what the implications of any political actions are going to be. Um, and then also the fact that if someone were to just start taking action, what would happen then, right? So like, I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but someone, <laughs> an American, starts taking certain actions to specifically and, and sort of high, in a high leverage fashion uh, bring down the temperature. And it sets off this chain of 
events with multiple different geopolitical actors and nations. And, you know, this massive race is on to model what's going to actually happen and, and occur and, and flow from um, this change. And then people you know, who don't like the specific outcomes, like there's this tension that he supposes in this book where it's like, Many different models have lots of different outcomes and in, in their variants of how climate change is going to affect any specific location. But it seems to be that there's a trade-off typically between China and India, like the monsoons in India versus like crop sustainability in China seems to be a, a recurring theme in all these different models. And so it's like, well, what happens if even if you have intentions that are good and a high quality understanding, you are still left with trade-offs between geopolitical actors that have a great deal of power in the world. Um, so that's one interesting thing, because like part, part, like I think part of it is having a high quality map, like part of it's truth. And then part of it's this age old question of given truth, it, there are still tensions and still questions about what to do and how to act and, and you know, what our ethical imperatives are as humans and as societies. Uh, but, but yeah. I feel like we always get down these sort of discussions when it comes to idea market related things, you know, it's just always like, oh, it's, you know, about finding truth, but then it gets straight into, you know, moral philosophy. What, what should we be doing? Uh, that's kind of where my mind goes. And it's just like, you pull on the thread of idea market and you're suddenly just ensconced in philosophy. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you guys are, you yeah, guys sorry are doing about a lot that. Of, you guys are doing a lot. Well, it's not, it's not, I mean, <laughs> the world wouldn't necessarily be a bad place if, if people spend a little more time thinking about more philosophy, I don't think. I mean, we obviously can't spend all of our time thinking about abstract questions. And you guys, you guys you know, are creating a real product and that's going to have meaningful impact um, in, in concrete terms. Uh, it's just always the case that when you're talking about topics like truth, um, there's, a, there's a cycle of abstraction in, you know, abstract reflection and then concrete implementation, right? And um, it's always interesting or useful for me, at least to keep in mind that no matter how high quality map we have, it's so first of all, pragmatically, it's worth having a good map, uh, but also no matter the quality of the map, we're still left with certain perennial questions and tensions um, that are as old as humanity itself. And so yeah. I think that sort of helps ground us. For me, I, I care a lot about trying to avoid Utopianism when it comes to sort of any uh, any project or any any trajectory because it's like we have to look, we have to know our limited know our limitations and and to some extent have faith that what we're going to what we're pursuing is going to um, manifest uh, as best as it possibly can given that what we're pursuing is in line with a set of ethics and virtues that we hold um, locally. So, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent, and I, I want to make make clear if I, if I haven't that one of our kind of guiding principles from early on was to thoroughly admit defeat in the quest to define truth or decide how everyone should define it. Like we're, we're trying to make that question not relevant here um, because the, the system that we've had recently is kind of about creating assemblages of facts, mm -hmm. finding finding a bunch of little certainties and stacking them on top of each other. Um, but since uncertainty is, is far more fundamental, um, we're 
trying to build something that starts starts from that and acknowledges that and and builds in a healthier relationship to that uncertainty than the pretending it doesn't exist model, which is kind of the facts model. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I just I just want to echo what you're saying here and and uh, underline that we're really not trying to define truth but build rails for um, a relationship a relationship to it that's that's based on a on a map of its actual you know fundamental uncertainty does that does that kind of make sense i because i really i really don't want to come across as so arrogant as trying to define truth in some new way that's really that's really not what this is about it's just about encouraging a a relationship to the process of truth preference, of truth valuing, without any kind of prescriptiveness about what it entails in the end. Like we're the one of the main reasons we're using markets at all is because we want to honor the subjectiveness of the conclusions. That yeah. you know, to whatever extent, you know, if whenever someone finds certainty, the next step is always to try to enforce it on other people. And at the you know, the end of the ground reality of all truth seeking is personal judgment. Have you seen that Ouroboros that uh, Scott Alexander put on his blog a while back? That thing changed my life. I don't even really read Scott Alexander that much, but the Ouroboros where he has like personal opinion, expert opinion, uh, you know, scientific study, randomized controlled trials, meta-analysis, and then it feeds all the way right back into personal opinion. Mm -hmm. Like that thing, that is the <laughs> essence of this. Well, like we have to keep personal opinion as like the foundational kernel of our truth-seeking mechanisms, or you're just going to end up with some kind of tyranny. So um, I just I just wanted to harp on that a lot because uh, this is by no means an experiment in defining truth once and for all. It's it's an experiment and completely giving up on the notion actually. Yeah, I mean it seems like a, a commitment to attempting to identify and, and, and sort of upregulate in the in the social consciousness high fidelity functional representations of reality right? like we can say something like that without even going near this word truth right like we can just say the representations that we are like to some extent we want to be on the side of representations that allow us to actually work with work sustainably with the world and increasingly build these Share projects with each other that rely on the capacity to coordinate and communicate and, and actually do so across larger and larger groups that, whether we like it or not, are, are now connected across the world. Like we can't, uh, well, not that we can't perhaps, but it's difficult to imagine disconnecting everyone at this point, right? Um, short, short of some sort of catastrophic events. Uh, so then the only question is, well, given that everyone is now connected and that connectivity of every single human mind uh, has thrown us into somewhat of a state of chaos and is making every single set of mental models that we each hold in our mind subject to a great deal of examination, scrutiny and friction, how do we come back to a place where we can constructively stitch those back together um, without trying to annihilate the representations that others hold in their minds, you know, like we need not like this idea that we're so fearful of other alternative representations of reality. Like it, it's very strange to me 
this, this need to destroy others' representations of reality if they don't accord with our own um, seems to communicate such a deep fear of the fact that we don't, or a deep fear or a deep insecurity about our own models, perhaps, right? The existence of other models yeah. seems to imply the incorrect nature of our own. And I think that, again, that's a legacy of this idea that uh, truth must converge to unity. And I don't think that that's true. I think that fundamentally this word truth is, is much better seen through the idea of, of coherence, how multiple different facets of perspective can actually functionally come together to enable um, productive, cooperative, and competitive interaction in a way that is sustainable and adaptive across time. And, and if we see it in that way, doesn't like the fact that someone else looks at the world differently from ourselves does not mean that we must feel insecure or, or pursue the obliteration of their perspective, um, as we see is so common today. And, you know, I think anything that can help us realize that or facilitate that process is um, something that I want to help flourish in the world. So I'm, I'm really happy to see that y'all are pursuing a goal like that and I'm happy to help in any way I can. Awesome. It's been it's fun just chatting at this point. <laughs> yeah. I've been I've been shutting you guys out. James, you haven't spoken in like forty minutes. Yeah, got anything? I don't know. Well, I enjoy not speaking. You know, it's quite fun. Okay. Well, no pressure. No pressure. I just want to provide space. But um, yeah, um, yeah, and regardless of you know, the character of, of truth. There are things that we can't help but do. We have so much time, we have so much attention and, and effort to spend. Every college student goes, you know, why am I here? How, what am I going to do with my life? That's, that's a, that is a resource allocation question. And everyone asks it. It's like, it's not optional. And on a society-wide scale, on a global scale, we have the same questions. What are, what are we going to decide is important? What are we going to do? What do we think is true? These are all really kind of resource allocation questions. We can choose to prioritize things and deprioritize other things. And um, without, without really coming to any conclusions about truth as like a philosophical notion of justifiable certainty or anything like that, um, if we can improve the results of our resource allocation, our non-optional resource allocation decisions, that seems uh, useful. That seems that seems like it might uh, you know provide some benefit. So it's a big it's a big experiment, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that manifests just, just over a, yeah. that manifests over every dimension of life. You know, it's like this idea of, of what are the quality of our actions? And I, that's another key theme that I explore quite a bit is this idea of, of the quality of an action, right? This, this idea of a trade-off often between time and quality as well, right? This notion that we need to understand that those trade-off, those resource allocation decisions that you mentioned, um, those happen at every scale of our lives. And they, you know, for the quality of, the decisions that are occurring at the highest orders of scale, 
you know, the, the, the quality that occurred, the quality of decisions being made by our governments, for example, for that to be of sufficient quality. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in the idea that the people within that nation have to be living high quality lives. I mean, I think that our politics are in many ways a trailing indicator of the quality of our culture. And the culture is a trailing indicator of the quality of the lives that we're living. And I think in many ways, I mean, this is why it was very difficult for me to see Trump as anything other than a symptom of a culture that had been obsessed with solipsistic reality television and representation over substance for 20 years or more, at least, right? And, and to scapegoat him and to look at him as other, as opposed to see a reflection of our own culture and our own cultural priorities in him is, I think, an unwillingness to look at the shadow of the past 30, 40 years of what we've uh, done to our own lives and, and, and the priorities and the choices that we've made and, and the way that we've decided to live. Uh, the, the fact that we've become so enamored with the representation and the narrative over the actual individual engagement with physical reality, right? Sitting on a couch and passively consuming life as entertainment, as opposed to getting out there yourself and, and actually engaging with whatever part of this world you find meaningful, such that you can develop a high quality relationship with that slice of reality. You know, we, we lost a lot of that. Um, and it's time to get it back. You know, it's time to, it's time to actually re-examine what our priorities are, what a high quality life means, what a high quality, what high quality relationships mean, what high quality you know, education means, what high quality comprehension of information means. You know, that's where you guys are helping. And I think personally, as someone who looks at the world from an emergent perspective, I don't believe that those decisions that emanate from these higher order abstractions, these, these political abstractions, I don't think that they will ever reach uh, satisfactory quality until we ourselves increase the quality of our, of our own lives, our own communities, um, and the processes that, you know, we live out daily. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I may have, uh, missed some of the intro, but I'm, I'm interested to hear how, uh, you know, how you're personally handling some of these questions and, and what you're engaging with, uh, right now as an extension of this same kind of, uh, feeling. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of things like I, <laughs> my life, has changed drastically over the past 18 months. Um, I mean, I'm the, you might see the sort of like scattered environment behind me. I'm up in, um, basically our, our workshop. I have a little office up here. I'm remodeling it. I'm going to be installing a window behind me. And in any case, moved from San Francisco out to a rural area in Oregon and, um, have been exploring a number of things here in terms of getting back in touch with, land systems, the part of this land was, uh, you know, logged a number of times and is in like different phases of regrowth into old growth and trying to figure out how to help steward that process. And that's basically been a window into a massive amount of learning about ecological systems and an opportunity for me to map a lot of my work on complex systems into that ecological space. Um, I've been focusing a lot on understanding food systems, uh, growing our own food, uh, just being very close to those processes. I mean, it's kind of fascinating to actually spend the first year. I basically didn't, in, in, I didn't add any water systems, any irrigation systems or any automation because I wanted to be out there um, like every morning, seeing all of these systems evolve and co-interact and, and understanding what was going on. 
um, getting that sort of closeness and just practicing the skills of observation and trying to understand the active inferencing process about what's actually going on with weather, temperature, water, um, density of different plants, plant interact, plant to plant interaction, um, and just observing that and, and thinking through it and, and then <laughs> literally consuming the fruits of that labor. Um, and, you know, I am talking with some people in the area about regenerative agriculture processes that they're already, uh, that they're already doing and not getting compensated for. And there are other companies like Regen Network, for example, that, um, I may be working with in the future, uh, to help figure out how to, how to bring some of this sort of like process-based integrity that's already going on to an economic model that offers these people compensation for doing what's actually not just good for the land, but also, you know, could be good for them economically uh, by putting, uh, by mapping up complex behaviors. It's kind of interesting that there's a parallel between what they're doing and what you're doing, right? Like this idea of there, there's like a bunch of different processes that could be of high quality that these farmers, these small farmers are doing, but right now, is there, is there a market for that, right? Well, if you can tie that to at least at first a carbon market, or a market of people who are willing to pay for these long-term priorities, then you can basically uh, make visible and also by making visible, make uh, rewarding economically uh, this whole other certain set of processes. So I'm interested in, in, in actually figuring out how that works in my local area because there's a lot of people who are, who are the perfect candidates for, uh, for exploring that space. Uh, and then, you know, there's a project that I've kind of had on pause for a while. I started building a few years ago. Um, but I, but I want to, I want to actually get it out there, which is actually associated with uh, basically uh, mapping your values to actions at different types of timescales. So, like, I still use it personally to help manage my own daily, weekly, monthly life, and, and manage how that maps to my values over time as well. Um, but increasingly, want to start getting some people to uh, give me some feedback on that, and, and maybe get it out to wider and wider audiences. Because the whole point of that is to figure out. Instead of trying to change the world from the top down, how do you look at your own values in your own daily life, and then and then stitch and like first of all balance that in your own set of constraints, in your own time constraints, emotional constraints, energy constraints, um, to help sort of steward your own evolution and your own increased capacity to um, take agency in in your personal sphere, and then perhaps hook that up to other people in your uh, in your life and your family, and then perhaps build that to your community. So taking a very bottom-up approach in terms of uh, providing a tool for people to help steward their own patterns of behavior and how those relate to their values across time. Um, so yeah, that's sort of the, the spread of things that I'm, I'm up to at the moment, um, in addition to sort of just some research in, in, the, in the domains that I'm constantly interested in with respect to representation and value and, and money and, and things of that nature in the crypto space specifically, but also generally. So, um, key question, other than matthewpukowski.com, where else, uh, is that the main place to find your, your essays and your work or is, is there other places as well? Yeah, that's the main place. I, like the past few years, I've, I've spent much more time, I kind of go through phases and I've been in very much a, uh, sort of, uh, convergent ingestive phase over the past couple of years, as well as, you know, building a few things and then moving and getting married and doing a ton of other um, life-oriented processes, totally reorienting 
my daily routines, like in the middle of like nature and a farm as opposed to in the city. So my writing, I haven't been doing as much writing, but um, getting back into it and it will be uh, MatthewPercuski.com. Probably I'm considering either just self posting something in the future or doing a Substack as well, um, where I'll publish this next essay on proof of work, proof of, proof of stake, but I'll let you all know before I do that. That sounds great. And I also would like to see the, um, the values mapping, uh, that you're working on because I love the impulse of coming out of abstraction and into the concrete, because I think that's, that's, that's where so much value is, is created. And it, it took me forever to learn this because I'm, you know, inclined to abstraction, but mm -hmm. uh, I'm just, I'm really easily excited by projects that are about uh, condensing and compressing all of the intellection that happens, you know, so easily these days into, into action and, and more um, tangible concrete things. Mm -hmm. I just think that's a really cool. Which uh, is why I built it for myself because I have that same predisposition towards abstraction. And then I wanted something to really help me understand how to map that onto action. And then not just action, like on a calendar, this very hyper-rationalized way, but the whole thing is based around, essentially frequencies and trying to figure out how these frequencies interrelate, right? I mean, like, you know how frequencies can have constructive and destructive interference, right? Well, it's the same for the different types of things that we want to do in our lives along different dimensions. We have a finite amount of energy and we have a finite amount of attention. And sometimes uh, the things that we want to do can, can have sort of constructive interference. They can help facilitate one another. And sometimes they can pull against one another. And I was really interested in figuring out how to map that and, and put it down so into action. So, yeah, I would love to You're show trying that to make really music important. out of habits. Kind of. Kind of, that's the idea, yeah. And uh, it's been helpful for me so far. It's not quite there, but, like, it's it's been it's been good so far. And, you know, if you're interested in it, I would, I would definitely I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you. I know Sam, Sam and I have talked about it as well in the past, and <laughs> this is sort of something that's been in the background, but I, I really want to start bringing it to the foreground because uh, I've been using it, but I haven't really been sharing it with the world, so... Looking forward. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it seems like a um, pretty good place, place to finish up, Sam. Was, were you going to add something in? No, no. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty good place to finish up there. Um, Matthew, <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks. I guess except much. to just oh, like, follow okay. Matt on Yeah, follow Matt on Twitter. Follow Matt on and, Twitter. Uh, like, we, did, we didn't like plug the Twitter, and like that's the – at least from my perspective, over the you know having followed Matt for the past few years and followed some of his work, Twitter is the best place to get his stuff plugged into your head. In a, well, that, that's a terrible uh, we'll have those. It, we'll know, have those links in that downloading Matt's mind. <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 hopefully, I will increasingly uh, provide provide maybe like less pathological mediums. <laughs> <laughs> interacting with my work, uh, low, low, lower, uh, lower sort of mimetic radioactivity domains than Twitter. But right now, yeah, that is, that is kind of the primary, primary location where I brain dump when I'm having thoughts that I think should be you out there. You've been trying to branch out, right? Like you've tried mines, you've tried a few of these others, but like the gravity well, that is Twitter. It's just impossible to escape at this point in time, but hopefully there's enough, um, you know, cultural energy, Perhaps with this Joe Rogan thing, who knows what could happen over the next year that could push us to something that's a bit more, that, that works a bit better for all of us. So true. So true. And hopefully something that, that uses technology to really facilitate and enhance conversation. Because 
that just hasn't emerged yet, and it's so necessary. Sweet. Well, all those, uh, Jeff Atwood is thinking about very similar things, and we just talked to him last week or two weeks ago. Sorry to keep adding, addending yeah. things to the end of this, <laughs> but fun. definitely check out check out the podcast with Jeff Atwood. He was talking exactly about using software to engineer and encourage better conversations on the internet. I think it's really good, good intersection. Yeah, I'll yeah. check it out. You said Jeff, Jeff Atwood? Atwood, yeah. He's the creator of, uh, well, the founder of Stack Exchange and then the creator of Discourse. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So, cool. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm not trying to like completely just draw a line and shut it down. But I know if one person asks like one question, we're gone. We're gone for another hour. So I'm gonna have to. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Thanks to everyone and Matt, especially. Thanks for coming on. This was a really great, really great talk. And uh, yeah, everyone, be sure to follow the Twitter, go on Matt's blog, and all those links will be in the description. But um, yeah, thank you. Thank you all for having me on. Really appreciate it. It's a great conversation. Great pleasure. See you on Twitter.